listening to The Current Reality Podcast, where we talk about staying anchored in biblical reality within the current of modern culture. We are your hosts. I'm Michael Clary, and with me is Wade Thomas. We're both on staff at Christ the King Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, which makes this podcast possible. And if you'd like to ask a question or give some feedback, you can reach us at currentrealitypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's currentrealitypodcast at gmail.com. And we're going to be answering questions at the end of every episode starting today, Mm -hmm. today's episode, which is episode eight. We need to talk about the demon community. So, Wade, I'll kick it over to you to get us going. What you got for us today? Mm, I love that title. That's the first thing I got for us. Uh, Secondly, we will not be taking questions from demons. So should any have any after listening to this episode, (laughs) they can can contact us via. They can ask someone else. I'm not interested. Okay, so in the last couple of episodes, uh, we have been talking about how the world is haunted with spiritual beings that are in rebellion against God, and they entice humans to do hellish things, things that are uh, that that are congruent with or move in the same direction as the desires of Satan and and hell. Today, we are going to talk about the backstory of the demon community. So. Michael, can you give us the prologue of of the novel that we all find ourselves in that God is writing? Don't you want to make a comment about the demon community? We had a good. Laugh I do. About that I earlier. do. Um, let me just say, I have basically decided I will no longer use the word community in an actual, positive, real sense. It is so <laughs> not only overused, but but deviously used, as in LGBTQ community, that I am now only going to use it ironically. So, pedophile community. Um, you might offend the axe murderer community. That's with true. That sort of comment. That's true. Very good. Do we actually have axe murderers still? This is 2023. I'm sure somebody would kill somebody with I an mean, axe. I mean, like Lizzie Borden did that in like 1880 or something, but I don't. Your okay. obscure references never cease to amaze me. Yeah. I know your fa- your favorite is John Stamos. That's, that's that kind is. of a go to obscure reference. That is. I have no idea who it was you just I said. I am the president of the John Stamos fan community. Well done. Well done. All right. Go ahead. Take it away. All right. I want to read a quote. This is from C.S. Lewis. Uh, This is from the Screwtape Letters, and um, I'm tempted to do it in a British accent just to to fully enter in. Please don't. C.S. Lewis says... Don't don't do it. Just don't do it. Just (laughs) resist that temptation. All right. He said... I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. Maybe I should stop here. This is a Screwtape Letters. Screwtape is a demon. It's fiction, obviously. Demon who is writing letters to his nephew, Wormwood, uh, teaching him how to deceive and manipulate and tempt the patient who is the Christian or or the man who becomes a Christian through Mm -hmm. the course of a book that Wormwood has been assigned to. So this is an older demon advising a younger demon on how to best get somebody to hell and ruin their life. Yeah. So, Screwtape is writing this letter to Wormwood. I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your old existence. Should I stop now? I, uh, please do. That was like mixed Scottish, British, Irish. No, no, my, my, my British accent is better Slovakian. than you give it credit for. Okay. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered, to, answered for us by the high command. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. I'll read that part again. I like that. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. 
When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. At least, not yet. I have great hopes that we shall learn in due time how to emotionalize and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is, in effect, belief in us, though not under that name, will creep in while the human mind remains closed to belief in the enemy, mm. referring to God. Mm. The fact that, quote, devils, unquote, are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. Can I toss in one thing real quick? Do it. He plays that out. Lewis plays that out in um, That Hideous Strength, the third book in the Space Trilogy. The the bad guys in that uh, in that novel, the NICE, it's an acronym, N-I-C-E, National Institute of something or other, um, <laughs> they are talking with demons and don't realize they're talking with demons. They are they they believe they're talking to some sort of extraterrestrial uh, creature. Mm-hmm. And in actuality, they are talking to rebel angels who hate God. So these are mm. atheists who are materialists in some sense and think they're talking to like somebody who can help them accomplish their secular aims in building a modern utopia, secular utopia, mm. and they're really talking to demons. So whenever I type in to chat GPT, tell me the way of salvation or something, I'm actually interacting with a demon? That is exactly the point of that book. That you, yeah. you, you did it perfectly. Right that did his strength. Okay. I just found out what ChatGPT was like a week ago, so I'm still not entirely sure. <laughs> That's new. That's okay. new. So I, you are, are you still annotating that book for me? Uh, yes, I am. Yeah. So Wade, I, I've read the first two books of the Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. started the third one, and I was like, man, I, I just am not getting into this. And so I kind of abandoned it, and Wade said, oh, you can't do that. So he yeah. took my physical copy and is annotating it for me so that whenever I get around to reading it, when he gives it back to me, I'll be able to, you know, yeah. see all of Wade's editorial notes and whatnot. If, if you haven't read it, it's a, it's a demolition of secular materialism. It's a demolition of feminism. Um, and it's a, it's a, if not a demolition, a, a very solid sledgehammer blow to the modern academy. I like it already. Yeah, me too. So, All right. So we're going to get into this, and we're going to talk about the backstory of the demon community, which we mean that tongue-in-cheek. The demon community is just a horde of vile creatures. Right. The demon community can go uh, to hell. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Very good. But we're going to talk about the demon community, the backstory. So we're not Darwinian materialists. The world is enchanted by spirits that God created. Some have rebelled. Uh, last time, we talked about how the earthly realm is a mirror reflection of the spiritual realm. The way you use the language of a semi-permeable mm-hmm. wall barrier between them. I like that. That's I think that's accurate. We have an account of the human rebellion against God in Scripture, but the Scriptures also talk about a rebellion in the spiritual realm, and that's a little less clear to us. It's not quite sitting out on the surface of the text the Mm -hmm. way the human rebellion is. So in other words, rebellion in the spiritual realm and the earthly realm occur together. They work in tandem. Three significant instances of of this we see in Genesis 1 through 11. The first one we're familiar with, sin in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. 
The second one, we're hardly familiar with at all, um, but it's really weird. And that's probably why we just don't understand it. And mm-hmm. that's where we're going to spend most of our time. That's Genesis 6, the sin of the watchers. And the uh, we're a little bit more familiar with the third one, the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. And each of these stories are told from the perspective of a human rebellion against God. And there are divine, angelic, spiritual mm-hmm. components in these stories. But we... We think of these as human stories, and that's the perspective they're told from. So even though we have less detail of the spiritual part, the Bible is clear that it happened. There, yeah. there was a spiritual arena yeah. rebellion happening alongside of the human rebellion happening. Yeah. Genesis 3, Satan is there in the garden talking right. as a serpent. Uh, Genesis 6, we have the sons of God. The sons of God. We'll explain what those mean. Genesis 11, it's more implied you have God, the, obviously God is spirit, mm-hmm. but the fact that they're building a tower would have been assumed to be a ziggurat, which mm-hmm. is a temple of sorts. Yeah. And so there's a spiritual element. They weren't three building stories. a concert hall. Right. You know, I mean, they, they were building something to go up. Yeah. Uh, to yeah. bring to bring God down. Right. Yeah. And we'll explain that here in a bit. I, I think the reason why we're not, why we miss these sort of little details, one is just we don't have knowledge of this ancient mindset, but we don't have knowledge of it because in the modern West, we are more naturalistic, Darwinian in our thinking. I'm affected by it, even though I reject yeah. that thoroughly. I'm affected by it. I just, I, I tend to, that's my default because it's the way I've always thought. Yeah. We're going to change that today. We're going to, we're going to go back and look at these stories in, from a, from a spiritual angle. So um, let's, let's walk through this. We'll start with the sin of the garden. This is the first one. We already know about it, and so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but Eden was created as a garden temple. The language implies that uh, from the way it's described. That's the six days of creation mm-hmm. uh, evoke images of the Old Testament temple. Um, similar language, work and keep the garden, for example, was the same language used of the priests in the temple. Yep. Um, so Adam is a king and a priest. The garden is a garden temple. It's a dwelling place where God dwelt with man in this, uh, this sanctuary. Let me insert here real quick. Mm-hmm. You're using this, but you and I, I don't want people to uh, mistakenly hear that you and I believe in a lot of metaphor in the Garden of Eden story as though Adam is just a picture. Of, like you and I believe in a literal garden, literal Adam. Adam was an actual man who existed. Um, he just, there is also this, this, uh, this layer to the story maybe mm-hmm. that we don't always catch. Absolutely. We, we we use graphic imagery all the time to describe real things, but we want to we want to communicate also more about that by using language to communicate real things that are symbolic as well. Yeah, kind of like the curtain on, on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. That curtain inside the temple, it literally was torn. Yes, but it also carried that tearing had a ton of significance to it beyond normal fabric. Right. Apart. That wasn't just the reporting of a fact like a journalist. Exactly. Oh, by the way, dear reader, the curtain tore. Exactly. That's a shame. They'll have to repair that. No, the, the fact that the curtain tore means that the holy place, the, the presence of God has now been set loose into this world because the the death of Jesus Christ has made a way. Exactly. Yeah. So with this, this real human being whose life we're told about in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and what God did, we're given the details we're given for, for a reason. Yeah, the ones we're given were given for a reason. Yeah, the the language evokes temple language. It's it's a this is a place of worship. So we should see Adam not merely as 
a fella walking around, but he is a gardener, which even the language of gardener is the gardening is a kingly role. Mm -hmm. So gardeners in the ancient world, uh, we're not talking about a a man who tills the field, but a gardener, somebody who cultivates fine this fine lush of environments. You think of the hanging gardens yeah, of Babylon. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar had those famous gardens, right? Yeah. So the, the so the garden language means this is a king, but the the other language so you have the holy. There's this holy food in the midst of the garden, growing from this holy tree. Um, that's that's something that would make you remind you of the temple where there's the bread of the presence. Mm-hmm. There's the most holy place that you have in the most holy place. You have the the two cherub that are built across the Ark of the Covenant. And whenever Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden, it was uh, the the way into the garden was guarded by cherubim. Um, That's good. So these are this is a holy place, a sanctuary, a temple. Um, so we see Adam. He's a gardener. He's a king. He's a priest in a temple. This is a meeting place, a dwelling place with God. This is a uh, in a an uncorrupted environment, sanctified, and God dwelt with man on this earth that He'd created. Um, but you have this being that shows up, the serpent that, um, is, uh, a member of the divine council, mm-hmm. we would assume he, he, we'll get to that in a moment, but, um, there's a being there and I don't, it, this is my view. I don't think Adam would have been shocked to, to encounter this creature because I think that there is a, it's not as though God, there was God mm-hmm. in the form of the Trinity, Adam and Eve and the serpent. And those were the only creatures sentient beings that existed. Um, I think it is, it doesn't, it doesn't blow my theology to think that there are angelic type beings that Adam and Eve may have interacted with. Milton tells it that way in Paradise Lost. Uh, who, I don't know if John Milton's in heaven, but he, he was, he was a Puritan more or less, uh, but he has angels interacting with Adam and Eve before the fall okay. in, in their garden home. Uh, and it's worth noting that in the Bible, in Old Testament Israel, guys like Gideon and Manoah, Samson's father, these people interact with angels. Yeah. And and it's something significant in their lives, but none of them go, oh, my goodness, I didn't even know such a being existed. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, right. So. Yeah. So Adam and, and Eve, well, the serpent appears to Eve first, Adam Adam's wife, but it doesn't. it's not as though she you know, ran for cover and it was right. like, Adam, come and <laughs> kill this snake with a garden hoe. Right. Um, there's a, they, they interacted. Um, so we, but we know how the story plays out. They, the Satan uh, tempted um, Eve and she fell, she was deceived. She fell into sin. She gave to Adam, he ate, they fell into sin. And that, that story is fairly well known. The thing that I want to highlight just at this point is that, that is a story of humans and uh, angelic creatures or divine beings, sons of God. These the, the 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 fall was in tandem. Satan was leading them into temptation. Mm-hmm. They were they fell at the temptation of Satan. So there was a demonic sin and a human sin that worked in concert together. Mm-hmm. That's the first one: the sin of the garden. In uh, in our Protestant tradition. We think of the fall, um, and that was because, um, my understanding at least, is because Augustine and his development of theology regarded this as the quintessential sin that was the trigger effect that, you know, the fall came from this. And, and, and that's well attested in Scripture. You see Romans 5 in particular talking about death entered through sin and whatnot. Um, the thing that I want to highlight here is that that's 
there are three paradigmatic sort of falls. And the it, it's more how do we arrange our theology? Do we see one as taking precedent? Um, whether you do or don't, it, it, it doesn't matter to me. I, I, I see, I, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from a position of seeing these other two things as things that were barely noticed in the Bible before, mm-hmm. and now I see, man, these are huge. And for reasons that will explain. So this, I mean, one significant distinction, I guess, would just death. Death entered through that first one, right? So that would be like at, at least a big, a, a distinction worth accounting for. Yeah. Even if these other two were also cataclysmic and, you know, carry their own import. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's a good point. So like, what we see in the next one, Genesis six, is a uh, there was sin that had entered into the world. So this was the portal through which sin entered the yeah. world. But what we see in Genesis six is a bit of an explanation for how sin multiplied and grew to the point that it was just, man, this world is so corrupt. Right. That's what we see in Genesis six to where this, and the Genesis three through three, through three, four and five, you see a, a descent into multiple layers of sin, but it really reached this crisis point in Genesis six, which is where the flood story happens. So something, it got so bad that God decided to flood the world and we see in Genesis 6 the trigger event. So it's kind of like Fort Sumter. You know, that's the first shots of the Civil War. But the the, the most significant battles, the things that left the most carnage actually happened later. Shiloh, Antietam, Gettysburg. So Genesis 3, that's sin, sin enters the world, death enters the world. But man, this these huge cataclysmic, the flood, you know, it was the whole world. Yeah. These huge cataclysmic events came later. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud, but no, no. I, yeah, that, that's good commentary. And I'll, whenever we get here um, to Genesis six, I was going to yeah, see if you could absolutely. open that up in your Bible and read that. Um, so we want to camp out on Genesis six for a while. This is the second of the big three that we're going to talk about today. And the the Bible gives us four verses of this story, maybe five if you count verse five. And so what we have is somewhat cryptic. Wade will read it here in a moment. And the thing that stands out to me, I'd always just thought, reading through my Bible in a year plan that I've done so many times, um, I'd get to the end of that and pause for a second and think, well, that was weird, and keep going. <laughs> okay, I guess we're going to have a flood now. Mm-hmm. Um, what I did not realize, and this is more new information for me, is just how monumental this story is for reasons that we'll explain. The thing is, is that this story was well known in the ancient world to both the Jewish people and to the surrounding uh, neighboring nations in the ancient Near East. And it was incredibly significant to the way the ancient people understood the world. In fact, this story that we're about to read is a, it's bragging rights for most of the other nations, particularly Babylon. They see this story as, this is why we're great. This is why Nebuchadnezzar and our civilization, why we have these hanging gardens of Babylon. This is why we are the greatest civilization known to man. Same with the Egyptians. They see what happened. Basically, what we're about to read, the Bible says, this is horrible and why God flooded mm-hmm. the world. Other civilizations see as this is why we're amazing and better than everybody right. else. So the Bible is is speaking to correct a false idea of how this was viewed. And so there are multiple versions of this story that were circulating around in the ancient Near East. And so, uh, wait, if you yeah. if you could read Genesis chapter six, uh, one through five. Yes. So this is the Bible's perfect account of something that really happened, and other nations talk about imperfectly. Yeah. 
When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord, or Yahweh, said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord, or Yahweh, saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I wrote a novel based on those five verses. I, I was just get, I was just getting ready to make a comment. I'm like, here is where we we cut to commercial. Yeah, and then you. This podcast is brought to you by Nephilim. The, yeah. Okay. Well, Stone Table Books is that? Yeah, Stone Table Books, imprint of Whitfin Stock. Uh, the movie's going to start Kevin Cosner, but that's going to take a few years to get done. I got to get. So is he a Nephilim? Is who? who I who, don't want to reveal too much, um, but it's you know J.J. <laughs> Abrams is going to produce. Um, no, there's never. There's never. <laughs> Jerry gonna, Bruckheimer. There's never going to be a movie. There's about. a nuclear bomb. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I'm. There's the movie Noah that yeah. came out a few years ago with Russell Crowe, I believe. Yeah, uh, it's written by Darren Aronofsky. He's kind of a messed up dude. Um, He's he, German, isn't he? Uh, or Polish? Maybe, something like that, probably. I, I don't think I know too much about his nationality, but I remember some earlier movies of his, particularly Requiem for a Dream, that I watched. And I think, if I remember right, he did a really blasphemous um, movie about God called uh, Mother or something like that. Mother, I think. I don't know it. Um, so he's a guy who uses a lot of religious imagery. And that Noah movie, I watched the, some of the clips of the Nephilim. Um, I, I think it, in some ways he takes the text more seriously than yeah. evangelical Christians, but he does it as a man who does not know God and I don't think fears God. Yeah, so I, I watched that movie. The whole thing. Yeah, not, not uh, in a way that... I didn't watch it thinking, oh, this will edify my faith. I've made that mistake once. Yeah. <laughs> with other it's got movies. Anthony Hopkins playing Methuselah, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah, that's one scene that I watched. But Russell, Russell Crowe, is it Russell mm -hmm. Crowe? So Russell Crowe play, plays Noah, but the, the movie is, the, the point of view is that it was, it's all naturalistic. Yeah. So it's almost like an atheist kind of worldview, but he, uh, it's a head trip. So there's a, I think the burning bush was like a little boy mm. that appeared to him. I might be, I may not be remembering um, this right. There was a Moses movie that did that where Christian Bale thought he saw Yahweh. Oh, was really a boy. But you're it, right. But it was the, but it, the tenor of both I think is very similar where we don't really believe uh, Yahweh told Noah to do this or Yahweh told Moses to do this, but something, something might've happened. And these stories have resonated for a while for a reason. I think that's kind of both guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now that you say it, Noah did not encounter a burning bush. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, whenever you think it in terms of movies, uh, yeah. these things kind of blur together. But I, I remember like the giants, they were like these big rock biter yeah. looking things. I, and I think of the rock biter from The NeverEnding Story, mm -hmm. which is a really random reference for... But it, it, just to put a bow on that, it is interesting that a thoughtful guy who tries to make serious art, and despite his blasphemy, I mean, he's a talented man, Yeah, he read this passage of scripture and some of the surrounding texts about these creatures, and he took them at least a little more seriously than some evangelicals who supposedly believe in inerrancy. 
but yeah. skip past parts of the Bible because they really don't know what to do with them. Yeah. That, that that's a that's a shame on us a little bit. Yeah, that, that's what I appreciate about the the material I've studied recently, Michael Heiser, who I'll be this is a good I guess this is as good a chance as any to just once again mention him because so much of my thinking on these topics is influenced by his work. And that was a an open door into other material that furthered my study on this. But Michael Heiser takes the text of Scripture seriously. I should say took. God rest his soul. He yeah. passed away uh, about a week ago. Yeah. Um, but he took the text of Scripture very seriously, so he's a legit scholar. Um, and he took, but he was also very interested in the worldview of the ancient Near East and how they thought, and so that led him into thinking and studying their culture, their literature, to to understand how did they view the world, and in so doing, he's opened up the scriptures in ways that has been very helpful. So he helped me, and that's why I'm passionate yeah. about this. He helped me take scriptures more seriously than I would have. Whereas before, I felt like, man, I hope an atheist never asked me about this right. because I wouldn't have an answer. I felt like kind of tongue-tied. But he, Moses wrote this book. How did Moses think? Exactly. So Genesis 6, The I'll, I'll make a few observations about the text Wade read a moment ago. The spread of evil and wickedness on the earth was directly tied to this series of events that happened in verses 1 through 4. The sin in this story was initiated by the sons of God. Mm-hmm. Um, can you, you want to you explain sons of God there? Yeah, so this is a phrase that's in um, particularly the Old Testament quite a bit. The, the best understanding I have of it, and I'm, I'm, I think in the majority of evangelical, you know, serious theologians and, and scholars here, is that these are uh, spirit beings. These are beings that God. These are these are not advanced human beings or uh, really holy human beings. These are uh, spiritual personalities that God created, and with whom He can take counsel. He can commission for tasks. He can, it, you know, you might picture a, a king surrounded by his advisors or counselors, or you might picture a general surrounded by his lieutenants. Or yeah. uh, is that is that about? Your yes. understanding. Yeah, exactly. Divine beings, uh, and we use the word divine. And not they're not equal with God, but not they uncreated. are. They're they're these spiritual beings, but divine beings is a is a another way to describe them. the The language "sons of God" is interesting because it implies family, and God is the Father. Yeah, and He created them, and so "son of God" is is not an inappropriate thing. And it is noteworthy how in the scriptures, Christians are called sons of God, but that's something that we have a right to through faith in Christ, mm-hmm. who is the son of God par excellence. We have been adopted. These were not adopted. They began that way. Yeah. So what we're talking about, some sin took place here in Genesis 6, and it was initiated by these beings that are part of God's ruling family, God's sons. You could think, you know, God's got... Some some sons, some 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 creatures that he created, that he he is the king, God being. They the help ruler. him administer the heavenly household. Exactly. Yeah. The, they they administer the heavenly household. That's a good way to put it. And but they've they're up to something. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they so they they rebelled. They hatched this plan, and the plan, weird as it is, they hatched a plan to have sex with human women, and have children by them. And to to have children by them, they would essentially spawn a a uh, species, a yeah. subspecies of human, some hybrid species of of creatures, and those creatures are called Nephilim. Mm-hmm. We should probably camp out for a second and yeah so let me, <laughs> let me real quick I, I'll, I think you and i have a subtle difference here but i don't think either one is i think you could believe you could believe either one of what you and i take and and be within both are inbounds yeah both are inbounds so mine is and this is you know without giving too much away this is the kind of the uh the villain in that novel nephilim that i wrote uh my my take is that these spiritual beings somehow did actually have sex with human women and produce spawn. I can't explain that. I can't explain how a spiritual being, but I also can't explain how spiritual beings ate with Abraham or how yeah. spiritual beings, you know, caused, I think with Manoah, they, they burn up his bread or something in the story of mm-hmm. Samson's father. There are times where these spiritual beings that God has created do physical things. And so my my interpretation of this text, the best shot I've got at it is that these spiritual beings actually had intercourse with these women, produced these creatures that are giant. Yeah. They're big. And they're they are renowned among humanity. Yeah. So I don't know if they were I mean, I've thought about this. I don't I don't know if they were nine feet tall, twenty feet tall. I, d- I don't know how powerful they were or how long they lived. But they were they did not look like normal humans all the way, and they were more powerful than normal humans. That's yeah. my best read. I don't have a different that's my pers- I, I I have that I share that perspective. I, there are two perspectives that uh, I have heard, and it's kind of I, I would say I can represent the other perspective, and I don't know. Okay. Which I think is accurate. I thought maybe you had the one where they take over human men. Yeah. I thought maybe that's the one you had, but you're you, you're more open than I thought possibly yeah, to yeah, the yeah. spiritual. I, I don't have. Okay. It, it's it's all conjecture. Okay. But uh, I'll I'd make a couple of comments on that. Um, the well, let me let me explain the the alternate view. There are two ways to explain how this happened. So did phys- or did angelic beings have sex with women? You mentioned that these, how could they have a meal with Abraham, that sort of thing. So I think just as there are humans who will report experiences of encountering the spirit realm, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that is because God appointed it to happen because that person is a prophet. So if a man is a prophet, God sort of peels back the material curtain they can see through this semi-permeable yep. layer, this barrier, enter into, experience this spiritual realm. The reverse is also possible. Yeah. Sometimes these divine beings, angelic beings, can penetrate the barrier from their side, enter into our experience, and as the author of Hebrews says, sometimes we can yep. entertain angels unawares. They, a few of them ask Jesus to send them into pigs. Uh, those would be the demons. Right. Uh, so I, I, what I'm saying, we, we can get into demons, but I'm saying there are some at least spiritual beings who clearly interact with physical yes. animals and humans. Well, that that's the key. The key is, so what 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 is something that human beings, like if, if you have a, a human being, we're embodied, physical, material. 
what's the thing that we're really fascinated by? And if somebody's dabbling in the occult, what are they really curious about? The spirit realm. Yeah, yeah. They want to be like, I want to know about mediums, and I want to know how to contact the dead. And it's, it is an interface with the spirit realm. And so spirit, the... And we are embodied souls. We have, mm-hmm. we're both a composite of body and spirit. But the thing that we are more in touch with is the material side. But the spiritual realm that we should have contact with by, and God, but God, at God's uh, permission, that's, that's from us. So I think the reverse intrigue is also true. Exactly. The reverse intrigue is also true. So I would imagine that you have these spirit beings that somehow their experience is is different than ours and we we can't quantify it. it's something we don't have access to but their experience is different from ours in such a way that they look in on our experience and think like man somehow they can they're yeah. aware of it somehow they would want to be a part of it and they are tempted by it and I think there's enough data that I'll share as we go along here to support that claim they saw that the daughters of man were attractive yeah they're like, I like that. Men do that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so then how does this work? There's two ways it could work that we've that we'll at least explain here. One way is the way Wade said. Somehow they were able to break through this barrier um, just the way somebody that dabbles in witchcraft might break through in some way a spirit layer and have some experience in the spirit realm that God did not authorize, which is why is it, why is it a great sin, why mm-hmm. it is a great sin. Conversely, you have spirit beings that were able to break through somehow through into the physical realm and have, as, as an embodied being, physical sexual intercourse with a woman, such that he could impregnate her. Mm-hmm. Um, that stretches the imagination in ways that I don't think are wrong or uh, unfathomable, but that that introduces other questions that we don't have answers to. Like, why would they be created by God with procreative ability? Right. So I don't want to be graphic, but why would they have the body parts and the capacity to do the things that would get a woman pregnant? So I think because of those difficulties, another there is another view that I think has some merit and is at least uh, is at least equally plausible. And that is that these spirit beings can possess a human being the way we would think of a demon possession. And then through some sort of, so so let's say a human being, um, and we'll put this in the context of a cult, like a a sex cult, where a demon or, well, this spiritual being would inhabit the body of a man who would be a priest, who would then mate with a human woman Mm -hmm. and then give birth to a child. And so in some way, there is a spiritual component of that union that would not have otherwise been. Um, Here's here's what's interesting about that. The Epic of Gilgamesh is a... Famous for its flood story, if I remember right. Yeah, flood story. Um, Actually, in our our church office, I just picked this up uh, yesterday... Uh, the Gilgamesh epic and Old Testament parallels, and I've just this the the story of Gilgamesh is a it's Babylonian, right? I think uh, Mesopotamian. Okay, is yeah. a, approximate to Israel. I mean, in that part of the world neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. 
So uh, the thing about Gilgamesh that's really fascinating is according to their tradition, he is two-thirds human. Mm. Um, two-thirds human. How does that work? Well, he's got a human mother, a human father, and a spiritual father. Mm. Um, now, that's not conclusive, but man, it's awfully interesting. Um, and that now does how, there are problems with that view. How does that account for the fact that the the what produced the children they produced were these men of renown, to, such that they were considered a different species of human, right? That a, were not fully human. They, a possessed guy is that seems a little yeah yeah. So there the, we're. We are we are entering into things that are are speculative. We acknowledge that, and yet we're trying to make sense of the biblical data in a way that is faithful, um, and interacting with tools and resources that can help us understand how the ancient world thought of these things. The point, the uh, biggest point, I think that we should hammer home is the, what the Bible doesn't do is hey, all of those ancient stories of people who like weren't just regular people; those are all dumb, and none of that ever happened. Instead, the Bible says this is actually what really happened. Yeah. So if you've got a discomfort with anything spiritual or crazy or weird happening in our ancient past, I'm sorry. Yeah. (laughs) It's here in the inerrant inspired word of God. Yeah. That's enlightenment thinking. Yeah. That's why we started off originally saying we're not Darwinian naturalists. Right. We believe this world is haunted by spiritual beings. That's right. Um, haunted may be a provocative word because it makes you think of Scooby-Doo. Uh, yeah. At least it makes me think of Scooby-Doo and a phantom. <laughs> we mean, I mean, I think C.S. Lewis called it the numinous. He described it as the difference between hearing um, that the, the fear that you the fear that you feel when you hear that there is a tiger in the next room, hmm. as opposed to the fear that you feel when there when you hear there's a ghost in the next room. He said the difference between those two fears, that's what I'm getting at when I talk about the numinous. It's it's the feeling that there is something unearthly, spectral, mm-hmm. uh, vastly superior to the normal flesh and blood animals and humans I interact with that is present here. Yeah. And that fear is real. It's real. Wade. Yes. Don't move right behind you. That's good. Right now. That's good. Don't look. I, I'm, you know what? I'm comfortable with that. Uh, if there's something just, behind me. No, nah, you're fine. You know Jesus. Yeah. So you're good. Okay. We'll keep moving. Um, so the, the, here, here's another part of the story that is uh, difficult to, to reconcile. Um, this is verse four of Genesis six. The Nephilim, which is the, the children that were spawned by these unions, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore children to them. Mm-hmm. Um, here's what that means. The Nephilim, this event happened before Noah and the flood. Yeah. And after Noah and the flood, when all living creatures were wiped off from the face of the earth, yeah. they were still around. How did they still come around? A couple ways you could take that. One yeah. way is they survived the flood. They treaded water for <laughs> however long, which I don't think that's realistic. Um, other ways You're you could be really annoyed with the end of that book then of your book. Yeah. Did the Nephilim tread? I'm not it? just, it, you know, Oh, spoiler. I won't give it. I won't give it away. I want to do your favor, Wade. I want to drop a link to your Amazon book right. in the show notes. All right. So if you want to pick up a book, a copy of Wade's book, Nephilim, you can do it mm. on Amazon. There's a link in the show notes. Okay. Um, how did they get there? Another theory is that this behavior continued mm-hmm. after the flood. 
So we don't know. I've heard at least one guy speculate that one of Noah's daughters-in-law. Okay, well, if we're speculating, there is also speculation that Gilgamesh is Noah. Mm. That'll melt your brain. And the thing is, is that the flood is real. So all ancient cultures, all ancient flood stories came from some common source because there were eight people on the boat. Right. So they're all telling a story and there's an oral history that was passed down as people spread around and, but they all are telling a history of, of their own people, but their people trace their ancestry to a common origin. Um, and in some of these stories, Gilgamesh, or I, I don't know who it is that, that says this, but there are some traditions that say Gilgamesh is Noah. And he was just, because he's a great hero who survived the flood. Um, but the, these are these are far afield, but it's it's uh, somehow these what we can say, I think what you and I would both say with some measure of confidence is somehow these creatures that were not merely human were around after Noah. Yes. We both agree with that. Yeah. Somehow. Somehow. And we don't know. And the Bible doesn't give us data. And that's why we're we're careful. I mean, Wade and I are Bible guys. Like yeah. we 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 want to put our feet firmly on the Word of God and what it affirms. We believe, um, and we we have to be honest that the Bible doesn't answer every question right. because it's not it's not an answer book. It's right. not an encyclopedia. It is a redemptive story of it's it is sufficient for salvation. And Somebody's already had this thought though, so we should probably just go ahead and answer it. Do you and I both think that Goliath? That's why he was so tall. That somehow he was. Oh yeah, yeah. So do I. He's okay. a he's a nephilim. Yeah, he's not. There's no. Uh, he, Robert Waldo. If you've ever seen pictures of the tallest man who ever lived, he, yeah, he's not somebody you would be afraid of fighting. <laughs> no. You know what I mean? Like you get yeah. to a certain height as a normal human, and you're no longer intimidating. But this guy was yeah. nine feet tall and somehow terrifying. Yeah. So um, yeah, I, I think that Goliath was. So what? Well, I'll, okay. Here's here's the next my next note here, the nephilim that survived the flood continued to multiply um, and now their blood would have been diluted uh, unless, unless there was male and female and there was enough of them to be able to form entire clans, but presumably they intermingled with humans and they formed giant clans. And these giant clans are named in the old Testament. Some examples, the Amalekites, the Rephaim, the Anakim and the Zamzumim. Mm -hmm. These are mentioned in the old Testament and they're giant clans. So I'll read to you. This is a Deuteronomy verse, chapter three, verse eleven. So Moses and God's people have left Egypt. They're getting ready to go to Canaan. They're yes. getting ready to come into Canaan, and yes, some of these folks are. Um. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is a well. The book of Deuteronomy is is a sermon of Moses uh, on the cusp of entering the land. So, uh, Deuteronomy three. Um, Verse 11 says, Only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Mm -hmm. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. So Og, king of Bashan. Bashan. Uh, so Bashan is known as a as a, a dark neighborhood in the ancient world. It's uh, It's northern Israel, and it would have been considered it's 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 so mount hermon is there we'll get to that in a bit but it is it is considered a 
a gateway to the underworld. Um, so very dark, very wicked, evil place. Mount Hermon, which is in the region of Bashan, is where the Nephilim, the the, the initial uh, point of contact happened. Point of contact through that semi-permeable barrier. Um, and I, uh, he said that he was a he was the only one left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Mm-hmm. So he, Rephaim was part of these people that were descended from there. Yeah. So he's got the pedigree. He's in the right region. The Rephaim is uh, part of the, you know, the lineage. Og, king of Bashan, and he describes the size of his bed. Yeah. Nine cubits and four, uh, nine cubits long and four cubits wide. But what's noteworthy to me, the reason I brought up that this is in the days of when they're getting ready to conquest Canaan is... All we as far back as Noah, you got these guys mentioned. Okay, fine, maybe I can somehow make sense of that. But man, oh man, Michael, now you're telling me all the way up to Moses. I mean, that that's a story I'm much more familiar with. In that day, these things were still running around, and the answer is yes, yes. yes. Why would you describe the bed? Right. Who cares? You know, Saddam Hussein. He was right. killed in Iraq. Oh, by the way, he uh, he slept in a queen bed. Right. You know whose bed we don't know about? Everyone else in the Bible. <laughs> that's right. Moses never tells it. I had a four post queen bed. <laughs> like that's not, there's a, one reason. We had a select or was a sleep number bed. Yeah, <laughs> sleep number. No, I will take the og. I will take the og sleep number. And for what it's worth, a cubit is roughly eighteen inches. Yeah. So nine cubits was pretty dang big. Yeah. Bed. So these giant clans lived on until the days of David. David killed one of them. His name was Goliath. Yeah. Uh, his brother, uh, I don't know if it was Jimmy or Roger, his brother. I can't remember. Yeah, Roger. Stalin. Roger. No. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, but Goliath's brother is also mentioned. Yeah. And the Philistines, these people are, they have similar lineage. So there's, um, I don't know if it's a direct connection or if it's speculative, but the Philistines are um, considered by, by, by many to be associated with these people groups. I mean, they've got at least those two, uh, those two two giants that are mentioned being fought in the yeah. days of David. So like, you know, Palestine is what we know it nowadays, but back in the Bible days it was Philistine, but it's, uh, it, it is. Yeah. I, I, I just had a thought, but I'm like, ah, I'm, I'm not sure that's right. So I'll just, <laughs> I'll just skip it. Um, so Nephilim means giants. Uh, the ESV Bible I'm looking at here doesn't have, Oh, maybe it does. Let me, I let think me. Jerome, when he did the Vulgate translated that as gigantes, uh, yeah. which is where then, Nephilim. Yeah. And then I think the KJV has giants. Uh, okay. Yeah. Heiser, uh, he does some work in his book about the word Nephilim and how, you know, the, the different ways that the Hebrew could be understood. And he's one of them fall. That, I think Nephal doesn't yeah. that mean fall. Yeah. That, that, yeah. That's right. The Hebrew word for, for fall is Nephal. Yeah. Um, so they're like, well, Nephilim, that means the fallen ones. Uh, so obviously they're they send they're the fallen ones and Heiser argues convincingly that the the Hebrew grammar and the morphology of the letters doesn't work that way. Okay. Um, so it's like I think it's like nephilim. There's a in it in it whenever you over time it's like you you uh, eliminate the 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 layim nephilim. It just it sort of it sort of con- condenses. Okay. And he shows how that how that's the case in at a level of Hebrew that I, I don't understand. So he does not think it means fall, like the fall. Correct. Okay. It means giant. Okay. Um, so Genesis 6, 4, uh, yeah, so I just turned back over there. In the footnote, Nephilim, footnote 4, or giants. Yeah, my ESV has the same same footnote. Okay. So 
So uh, a couple of things about giants. Giants didn't always mean tall. Um, it, it could just mean great. So um, I believe in... Uh, so I was just reading, doing my Bible reading this morning, and I'm reading in Christian Standard Bible. And there is a reference to uh, men who were tall because Caleb was like, hey, let's go in and take the land mm-hmm. in the book of Numbers. And the other guy's like, no way. Those guys are huge. Um, the the uh, CSV said men of great size. Mm-hmm. ESV said tall. Um, but here in Genesis 6, you have men of renown. Um, I, I think what we see in the Bible clearly is that there is some physical stature that, right. is, that is meant. They're tall. That's why we get the size of Og's bed. Um, something is interesting. Uh, this may be a little bit in the weeds, but I'll, I'll, I'll say it quickly. The, uh, Goliath's size, you might, you, you mentioned earlier, heard that were they, was he nine feet? Was he 20 feet tall? We don't know. Um, so there are the, the manuscript that is most reliable is the newer manuscript that we now have, which is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Prior to that, Bible translations, including the King James and so on, um, they relied on the Masoretic text. And some people um, believe that the Masoretic text is inspired, mm-hmm. and that is the correct Hebrew version. we got a guy on staff here, I think, who yeah. thinks that. Yeah, a uh, well, guy on our staff, he thinks the Masoretic text is inspired. That is not my view. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls was discovered in the 40s, late yeah, 40s. Yeah, in like 47 or something. Yeah. And those, so that was a massive find because it, it almost the entire Old Testament Bible plus many other scrolls, those documents were much older than anything that had existed until that point. And that you were able to compare the Dead Sea Scrolls to the Masoretic text and see where there were some discrepancies, and it can help. It helped to explain um, little little changes mm-hmm. in language and spelling over the years. All discrepancies, which were minor when it comes to theological issues. Yeah, no yeah, major yeah. theological thing, but it is helpful for understanding how the Bible got to us the way it is. The Bible we have in our hands, the ESV Bible and other translations, they're reliable based on good scholarship. Mm-hmm. The point I'm making here is that the measurement of a cubit, uh, the way that both of those, the different text rendered a measurement of a cubit, would have altered the height of Goliath from nine feet to about six feet six feet six, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. So if you go with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the way that, um, I, I don't exactly understand how the measurements work, but that text would have would have put Goliath at about six feet six. Now, I'm six feet four, so that's a, that's a reasonable height for a human being to, right. to, to get to um, and not be because of some disease like Robert Waldo. Yeah. And the average height... In the ancient world, you can look at mummies, and you can find like the skeletal remains you can dig up. Or about five two is about average. So if you're a five foot two guy, and there's a six foot four guy, six foot six guy on the other side, you're scared, you're intimidated. But it can help explain why don't we have skeletal remains that are nine feet tall from the ancient world, but we do have, you know, some that would be unusually tall, that but are still reasonable. To me, that that. I mean, if it's nine feet tall, it's nine feet tall. But it, it it gives us an alternative that does line up with some of the evidence that we can yeah. find in archaeology. Quick insert I would make is it, we a lot of times we forget how how little we have. Yeah, like there are billions of human beings who have existed on planet Earth, and the number of 
remains that we have. It's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. So yeah, I, I have wondered, I used to wonder that too, but really I, I just, I'm okay with the fact that these guys were crazy huge in a way that no one is today, but we don't have their bones for the same reason. We don't have lots of people's bones. Yeah. Bones don't last. <laughs> yeah. So, well, um, so let's get, let's get to some of the interpretation of what happened in this story. The Bible treats it as an incredibly wicked act. This Bible says, like, what they did was horrible, and as Wade read earlier, verse 5 of Genesis chapter 6, this was, this this preceded the description of the wickedness of man that was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So clearly this was a, a wicked act. What's interesting is that the other cultures around Israel, the, the their neighbors, they all saw this as a fantastic thing, mm. a thing to celebrate. So what they said is, hey, the the gods came down from heaven, mated with human women, and in exchange, we made a deal with them. It was like a treaty between these two rival powers, a spiritual power to human power. And the deal was, yeah, you can mate with our women, and we but you pay us and you teach us some of your secrets. You teach us your technology. You teach us how to work in metals. You teach us how to blend potions. You teach us how to practice magic, how to contact the spirit realm. Um, and you te- <laughs> one of the things kind of funny is you teach us cosmetics. <laughs> so there's a thing about beautifying the eyelids and mm-hmm. so on. Um, I've got examples of this that I've, we're not going to have time to read today, but, um, but, the thing, basically, the idea is like there is advanced technology and advanced ability that these beings had that they could teach to humans through, uh, you know, through this contact that they had. And the deal was they get to have these women um, mm-hmm. in exchange. And some of these advancements would have been washed away by the flood and we no longer see right. them. Right. So we, we, I mean, the story of Atlantis isn't, I don't think corresponds to an actual event, but it is interesting that there is in ancient history, this idea of this place that had advanced technology that was then washed away. Yeah. Um, Well, there's still remnants and this is the stuff that really blows my mind. And I, I, I don't know what to make of it, but I just find it incredibly fascinating, but there are, the one that's most famous is the pyramids. Mm -hmm. Like they, we just don't know how these things were made. Because the type of stones that were there and the way there was no way to transport them, they were too big for any assemblage of human beings to carry them. Um, and yet there are similar structures found all over the world. Um, there's some in South America, mm. um, and they look very similar to a pyramid. Um, and some of these structures that you can find in these uh, these sites all around the world, there are just things that we think of these people that are a little better than cavemen. And there is incredibly precise stone cutting. They are oriented in such a way that um, they basically there's co- uh, astrological um, orientation to the buildings. They're lined up in a certain way to line up with the stars and the movements of the celestial bodies. Had very advanced knowledge of um, astral realm. Mm-hmm. It, it's mind blowing what. Mind blowing in such a way that I'm like, how could they possibly have known that without advanced telescopes and things like that that we're able to have today? Um, I think it's, it's no more ridiculous to believe that a rebel spirit could have helped with that, or rebel spirits could help with that, than it is to believe, which I do believe, that rebel spirits influenced their human sacrifice. Yeah, absolutely. The Aztecs and the Mesoamericans, many of these. Dry- 
you know, ripped the beating hearts out of people in their acts of worship. Yeah. I think that was demonic. I think well, that like, was Have you seen the movie Apocalypto? Oh, Mel Gibson? No, I haven't. Yeah, but... Th- it has that's, some of that. That that that's a it's a very dark movie. Um, so, yeah, very violent. And when it came out, it was like, hey, there's this is a very violent movie. But they depict that sort of behavior, and uh, they show the spiritual, the spiritual aspect of it. Mm. So these so there are some people in the science world that would that would be like, well. There must be. We can account for some of these things through alien contact. That is more plausible to them than to think that there's actually spirit. And that's beings. that C.S. Lewis quote that you quoted at the beginning. That's what's going on there. That, yeah. That, hey, don't worry, don't worry, uh, uh, Wormwood, because eventually we're going to get to the point where we have their science so emotionalized and mythologized that yeah. they'll uh, they'll believe in demons. They'll just call them aliens. <laughs> <laughs> don't sweat it, man. Yeah. We can get them to be afraid of us, but not believe in us at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And, and so my view is that these things actually happen. Um, we don't know the mechanics and stuff. But I believe not only that they happen, but because of some of the other data that I've studied, there's there are things that human beings learned from these beings. And that, so I think I, that's how they built the pyramids. That is how a lot of these other uh, there's a Instagram account uh, megalithic marvels mm. uh, just incredible stone cutting like Stonehenge but mm. like but stuff that's far more advanced but like these things came about through technologies that human beings did not possess at that time through their normal means but that's why the Babylonians and the Egyptians would boast here is why our civilization is better than everybody else why do we have pyramids and you guys are hanging out in caves and yeah chasing walruses around for food. You're coming here to Canaan to fight our giants. You guys just got out of Egypt. Yeah. Coming here with your, you know, wearing sheepskin or whatever. We yeah. have giants here in Canaan. You ain't taking us down. And it makes sense given the biblical storyline. Hey, God, uh, God, God could have chosen people out of right. Egypt and made them. But it's like, no, I want to choose lowly people who are slaves that got nothing. Um, you know, Abraham, he's going to, mm. you know, they're, this old man who's never had a kid. Yeah. I'm going to take him. He's going to show his power and his superiority in ways that nobody else was doing when all the other nations of the world were boasting of their might. And so here's a quote from Michael Heiser. He said, It is difficult to do justice to the importance of the idea that the knowledge that made Mesopotamian civilization great, particularly in the case of Babylon, came from a divine source. So Mm -hmm. that's how they viewed themselves. They viewed themselves, we are superior because the gods taught us better technology. Uh, they taught us skills. They taught us how to contact the right. spirit realm. Uh, we got it going on here. And so we're going to build our hanging gardens and we're yeah. going to we're going to display our might and the greatness of our civilization. And I'll be I mean, it's pretty impressive. The pyramids are still around. And but that all I mean, that would also explain why the Philistines are so cocky about their think about it. You got two armies, right? What is one guy being taller than the rest of the guys really have to? It's two armies. Yeah. Okay. You got one tall guy, but I got 5,000 soldiers over here. Well, if the one tall guy is emblematic or, or symbolic of uh, the fact that our gods, look, look what our gods, we got, we yeah. got superhuman beings over here on yeah. our side. You guys are 
It'll be like saying like, all right, um, Wade, let's, we, we have a, a war between us. Let's settle this. You find, you, you, you we'll play basketball. You, you give us uh, the best player on your team and I got LeBron James on my team. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let's go, let's play ball. We're, we'll, yeah. we'll crush you. I mean, it's, that's, that's kind of how they thought of it. So here's how the Jewish writers, uh, so this, when I say Jewish writers, I'm speaking of Moses in this instance, but um, the biblical writers, they, they disagreed, obviously, because we're, that's the, rep, that's the point of view we're representing here, but they disagreed with that. And God inspired Moses to write scripture, the book of Genesis and, uh, you know, all the biblical writers. They saw the thing that the Babylonians were boasting about and the Egyptians were boasting about as having a demonic origin, not a divine origin, not 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 from the God who created the world and has all power, mm. but a rebel deity, a rebel god, a demon, in large part because those divine beings were so intertwined with Mesopotamian demonology. This is a, a Michael Heiser. I'm, I'm looking at his material here. So I'll, I'll, I'll continue a quote. The Babylonian elite taught that the divine knowledge had survived the flood through a succeeding post-flood generation of what I'll call Nephilim, giant quasi-divine offspring fathered by the original pre-flood divine beings called the Watchers, and uh, and I won't get into that. The biblical writers took what Babylonians thought was proof of their own divine heritage, and they told a different story. So the biblical writers are correcting the record. Yes, there were giants, renowned men, both before and after the flood, but those offspring and their knowledge were not of the true God. They were the result of rebellion against the true God by lesser beings. So Genesis 6, along with 2 Peter and Jude, portray Babylon's boast as a horrific transgression and even worse, the catalyst that spread corruption throughout mankind. And so Genesis 6, 5 is essentially a summary of the effect of the transgression. Genesis 6, 6, 6, 5 being the thoughts of their hearts were only evil right. continually. Right. So all you Amalekites, all you Philistines, you you think that you have been created by and are protected by a God, and we're telling you you are actually serving rebellious traitors, traitorous yeah. sons of God. Yeah. You think you're on the right team? And you have no idea that you're actually doing the enemy's work. Right. You are serving Satan. Um, wait, you, I, I know you had dug up some historical uh, quotes. So just so this isn't just like we. I read a Michael Heiser book and came up with some crazy interpretation of Scripture. This actually is well attested to in the Church Fathers, and I know Wade had some examples. Yeah, uh, so Justin Martyr is a uh, pretty well-known uh, early Church Father from within about 100 years of the end of the New Testament. So he, he's about... You know, if you picture the old apostle John writing Revelation somewhere towards the end of the first century, this guy came about 70, 80 years after that. Uh, and he, he has a couple useful things to say about demons and rebel spirits. Uh, here's one. The poets and mythologists did not know that it was the wicked angels and those demons who had been begotten by them who did the various things to men, women, cities, and nations that the poets and mythologists wrote about. So pause there real quick. He's saying you you guys have your ancient poets telling their folk tales and writing their songs and their poetry and their stories about these real events. You don't they didn't know what they were talking about. I mean they mm-hmm. they told you the the big plot points right, but they didn't actually understand who was doing what. 
pick him up. So they ascribed them to God himself and to those who were considered to be his very offspring, for they called them by whatever name each of the angels had given to himself and to his children. So, I mean, C.S. Lewis imagines some of this in his fiction, but there could be a a spiritual being who personifies himself in such a way that you call him Zeus in ancient Greece. Right. Um, you think this Zeus is the, and, and I'm not saying that the, the, that Zeus is for sure corresponds to an actual angelic being or demonic being, but I'm saying that this is at least possible. And Justin Martyr is saying that things like this are at least possible. You have these stories about these divine beings and you think, you know, which one is good or which one is ultimate. And what you're actually interacting with are rebel divine beings, rebel right. spirits, traitorous right. spirits <clears throat> who are getting you to do wicked things and who are causing wicked things in your society, but you think that serving them will bring about some greater blessing. Um, and so, I mean, in, in that space trilogy, I think, I think Lewis imagines that Jupiter and Mars and uh, that, that, that these beings associated with the planets, they are actual angels. If I remember right, he puts them on the good guy side that they're, uh, hmm loyal angels, angels yeah. that are still loyal to God, but that the Greeks just got it wrong and they didn't know who they were talking to. Huh. Um, and the Romans. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that some of these ancient, uh, pantheons of ancient gods, I mean, they, we, we think of those as figments of their imagination and they're kind of in the modern world. We think they're kind of silly that they would believe that, but you know, maybe it made them feel good. Um, but in that time, they really believed in them. They thought that they were real. And arguably, there was some basis for that belief because they had some contact with them. Right. They had some interaction. If that's the case, then they may have interacted with these demonic beings, these rebel angels that were that were exercising dominion over them and trying to control them. And I'd and I think that that the biblical data would support that view. Yeah. Before I move to that, was there any other? Uh, uh, I'll just read you quote? one more from Justin Martyr here. He says uh, the angels transgressed this appointment and were captivated by love of women, and they begat children who are those who are called demons. <laughs> so he says demons. The the word we use demons. Uh, or demon, that word corresponds to these things, these rebel angels produced with women. Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, that, that, what we just described is the Genesis six story of the, 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 uh, Nephilim and how, how massively huge that was in the thinking of the ancient world. And now I'll move to the tower of Babel, which is the third of the three. And I'll just, I'll just spend a minute on this. But the Tower of Babel, the thing to note there is that there's not, you have the story of, I mean, you have God who appears as a character and he sees the work that they're doing. So if, you, if you're not familiar with the story as well, the human beings, God had called them to scatter around, scatter across the earth to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and scatter. Um, and they said, no, we don't want to do that. Um, let's camp out in this one city. Let's build a tower with its top in the heavens and then you know, uh, presumably God would come down and they would be able to commune with God. Um, God sees that, he's displeased with it, he scatters them, confuses their languages. The The structure that they built um, was, m most everybody would believe it was a ziggurat, which is a 
Uh, I said ziggurat. It sounds like an animal. <laughs> but I think that's z- how you say it. Ziggurat. It also sounds kind of like a candy bar, but I can't think of why. Nougat. Maybe I'm thinking of nougat. Nougat? What is nougat? It's like some, I think it's in. Uh, it's like caramel or something? Chewy? I don't know really what it's chewy. made of, but it's inside a Fifth Avenue bar. Snickers. It's in something. Yeah, I remember commercials would be like, you know, mm. delicious nougat. And I'm like, like Ted what, Nougat? Like what? Musician? <laughs> what is nougat? Ted Nougat. Oh, that's bad. All right. Ziggurat is like a pyramid, but at the top of this pyramid, there's a shrine. And the movie Apocalypto, that, it, it depicts that. It's flat at the top, right? You can walk around on it's it. It's flat at the top, and at the top is where they perform their dirty act of killing people. But it's a shrine, so it's a place where, I mean, the, the thinking in the ancient world is that gods live on the mountains. And so they, they were building like a human fake mountain. But at the top, there will be this shrine, which is closer to the gods where we can commune with them. And up there, we would perform uh, ceremonial, ritual type mm-hmm. of things. Um, so the, the story of the Tower of Babel, it's not just this construction project went awry, but it's, it's at the heart of the Old Testament worldview, because what, what happened there whenever God confused their languages and scattered them? We've mentioned this on a previous episode, but Deuteronomy 32 teaches that, um, strange as it would sound, God assigned rebel beings uh, authority over uh, these different these different groups. So he he assigned the different people according to the number of the sons of God is what uh, Deuteronomy 32 says. So God does command evil spirits. He commands, yeah, yes. And I think uh, the, the parallel that, the best way to think of it in terms of a parallel is what you see happening in Romans 1, where it says God gave them over to a depraved mind. So it is sort of like, you like sin? You really think sin is the way to go? Here you go. You know, have have a whole life, all the sin. Like, mm-hmm. God, and once God gives you over, then you're you're now completely removed from any protection from that mm-hmm. sin. Same thing. It's like, you really like rebel gods? You really like building this ziggurat? You think you control gods? You, is this the way you want to live? Fine. The, to the other gods, you shall go, and they will rule over you, and you will see how, how well it goes for you. That happens, Genesis 11. You have the table of nations that I believe is, is it right before or right after? Uh, there's the 70 nations uh, that are mentioned in Genesis, uh, I think it's Genesis 10. If, if it's 10, then it would be right before Babel. Uh, yeah, it's Genesis 10. So Genesis 10 is the table of nations, which tells you what these different nations are. Genesis 11 tells you uh, the Tower of Babel story where God disinherits the world and says, I'm through with you. You're going to now be ruled by these other nations. And then after the Tower of Babel story, you see the lineage of uh, Shem, which is one of Noah's sons. And so here is showing us the development of a righteous line from which God will, um, he will uh, choose Abraham and will begin a covenant, new covenant people. So the nations then at Babel given over to these rebellious beings. And it was, uh, at, at this time, it was, it was a, a judgment of God. And from there on out, the, it's like God disinheriting the entire planet. The, the planet is, has been given over. All the whole world has been given over to your sin. I did it once before at the flood, and uh, you continued to rebel. Now I've just given over the whole nation, or the whole planet, rather, all the nations to wicked rebellion. And from one of these 
foreign pagan nations. I'm going to pluck a man, Abraham, establish a covenant with him, and that will be the topic of another episode Mm. whenever we tell the story of the gospel from the divine perspective. Mm. So just thinking through how this bears on the reality that our listeners and that you and I are navigating today, we are living in a world. I don't think either of us, I mean, I can just go ahead and say, I don't, I don't, I don't believe there are Nephilim now today. I don't believe there are physical spawn of these Genesis six still walking around the earth today. I'm six foot four. Wait, okay. You're not. Uh, I know you're not. I mean, like you're, you are six foot four, but but I know. <laughs> um, yeah, there would <laughs> there'd be other clues I'd have picked up on if you were an Ephilim. Um but, but we are living in a world that is still this world is still engaged in this same war. Yes, we're still. Uh, this may not be, you know. The World War II looked different in 1944 than in 1941. Right. There were different, you know, theaters and different uh, tactics and movements of troops, but it was still the same war with the same players, same bad guys. Yes. Same good guys and same bad guys. And so we are still engaged in this same war. The same demons, the same uh, evil spirits, the same rebel spiritual beings that hated humanity and hated Yahweh in 1400 BC and 3000 BC and 5000 BC still yeah hate him and hate us. Yeah, so I'll I'll make one more point here. And this point can be a you know a, a cap put a ribbon on what we've been talking about and a bit of a trailer for future episodes. You want me to do some trailer music? Yes, please. I I don't know if I actually could. I, I shouldn't have offered. <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> All right, so here it is. Um the what happens throughout the rest of the Old Testament story, and this was this was a new insight to me just a few years ago when I first encountered this material, is the a, a subplot running through the entire Old Testament is the elimination of these creatures, these Nephilim. Um, the story of the conquest in the book of Joshua is about killing giants. It's about eliminating giant clans. Whenever David who was the, uh, the righteous king that, uh, who displaced Saul, who was a wicked king, but the first king that would unite Israel, uh, who would... He, he, he killed Goliath. Mm-hmm. So basically, he finished the work that was begun that the people in Joshua's day didn't do. The effects of sin continue to play out until the time of Christ comes, and Jesus is the one who is the ultimate giant killer mm-hmm. um, who... And Jesus, the thing that's interesting, we've been we've been kind of dancing around using the word demon because the word demon does not appear in the Old Testament. It appears only in the New Testament. And demons appear in the New Testament without explanation, presumably because the people in the New Testament would have understood that demons in the New Testament time are the spirits of dead Nephilim. I'll just leave it at that. And we can discuss that another day. All right. So if we want to use shorthand, if we want to use the word demon as shorthand for any rebel spirit, any angel that is not still loyal to Yahweh. Sure. Go ahead. Go to town. But you are going to make the case, and I'm going to be along for the ride and, and learning and peppering in some commentary on what 
what actually the word demon in New, in the New Testament when we see it translated in English, uh, what what it was referring to. Okay, let's. Uh, let, so I've got a, I've got a a question, but before we do that, let's at least. Um, Let's at least cap this discussion of rebel spirits with uh, one word of self-reflection on the church. Maybe some 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 areas where we have uh, been culpable in embarrassment about these things, um, not confronting spiritual realities, not dealing with the demonic or the hellish in the world. Can we at least say what are what are some specific ways that you or I or our church or the American church has contributed to the problem of not taking account of yeah. rebel spirits and angels? And I mean, I'll, I'll start by saying I, I grew up in the Pentecostal church. The Pentecostal church was very aware. It is to this day, I think, very aware. Pentecostal churches are very aware of this this. Uh, arena of reality, this theater of the war that is the spiritual realm. Um, but I also, in my particular Pentecostal church that I spent a good chunk of my childhood in, I remember us like stomping on rubber satans. I remember that in kids' church. They bought every, they bought a ton of rubber satans, and we were supposed to stomp on them. Not as a joke. Not as a joke. It was like, and I mean, there was a little bit of levity to it, but. It was it was meant to convey some sort of spiritual truth, uh, and it 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 didn't. I mean, that's not how it works. Jesus is triumphant over Satan, yes, right. but he's not the actual accuser, who is you know the chief architect of the rebellion against Yahweh. He is not some little tiny rubber toy right. that I can just take well, my sketches tights. and crush him with. Yeah, red tights. The C.S. Lewis quote. Uh, he. We, I wouldn't put it this way. I wouldn't think about Hitler that way. Sure. I wouldn't, I, I would not, it would seem almost a mockery to the memory of the people that Hitler murdered if I printed off a little cartoon of Hitler and had my kids stomp on it. No, this is an actual tyrant yeah. who's responsible for all kinds of carnage. And that's who Satan is. The accuser is this awful ancient serpent, the dragon, Abaddon, Apollyon, who hates my children and hates your children and loves abortion and loves infanticide and loves Holocaust and genocide and most of all loves blaspheming the actual God who actually exists and saved my soul. Amen. He's not some little tiny toy that I'm going to... So trivializing Satan, I think, is one area that the American church um, has not helped. Yeah has not helped the, us, us see this stuff accurately. And every time you say Apollyon, I think of the Left Behind books. Is, is he? That, a, I didn't get very far into them. Is that... I didn't... I, oh, that was a name of one of the books. One of the books. That was, was a name called Apollyon. It. So I think of Pilgrim's Progress. That's the name Bunyan gives to the satanic creature about a third of the way through the first Pilgrim's oh, okay. Progress book. I feel like I should know that, and I'm kind of embarrassed now that I... Uh, he doesn't <laughs> feature a ton in the rest of the book. Uh, some of the movies make him like the the main bad guy, but he's really only in that one section in the actual okay. book. So if you've read the book, you might have even forgotten he was there. He's just in the one yeah. section. But. Well, the, the way that I've been complicit in this is I have I think I've had the opposite problem of not, uh, not like, oh, he's we're going to uh, trivialize him and stomp on him. I just, I, I think I was felt embarrassed about okay. believing it. So it's it's not embarrassing to believe in uh, Satan. If you're a Christian, you believe in Satan, and you believe generally in demons. Those exist. But to but to attribute things to the demonic realm, it always seems a little cuckoo. 
uh, you know, as if you, you think that that a person that is always talking about, it's like, well, Satan tempted me and I've got the devil whispering in my ear. There's a certain dismissiveness that you could think of a person like that. Mm. And I, I was certainly would have been dismissive and, because I want to be respectable. That was always a, an, an idol in my heart of, I want to say the thing that sounds very intellectual and sophisticated, uh, which is why you and I have, um, trying to help you've, you've been helpful to me, uh, at least to, to unmask the sophistry of, of that sort of thinking, trying to be respectable and put mm-hmm. together. And I am, uh, erudite and mm-hmm. intellectual. Um, and of course I love to learn and God has given me an intellect, but I want to glorify him in that but I don't want to to let the desire to appear intellectual yeah. to drive my thinking and my theology. And I am guilty of the very thing that Lewis quote yeah, that Lewis quoted too. at the beginning, which is wormwood, you know, yeah. whatever whatever demon uh, that I might have been tempted by or whatever. I'm just just trying to to appear smart and that that I've allowed myself to be susceptible to deception and and false thinking because I don't want to acknowledge a demonic realm. I didn't. Um, yeah. And as I've gotten over that, the more I've been like, the stuff is real, and I want to take it seriously. And it's amazing how freeing that is because it really does become less daunting. Uh, the, the idea of impressing human beings, even the ones listening to this podcast, really becomes a lot less important once you realize, oh my goodness, there are creatures, eternal creatures I can't see, uh, creatures that will exist for forever who who hate the church that I'm sitting in mm-hmm. and who hate the Christians that I worship with on Sundays. Yeah. The, the idea of <laughs> whether or not I come across as super sophisticated to some dude who listens to my sermon or listens to me on this podcast really becomes a lot less monumental when I think of that eternal reality. There is a, there is a, you know, a hellish, uh, landscape that I can't see on which rebel spirits are plotting attacks against God's kingdom, the kingdom of Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. What the heck does it matter what some dude thinks of me? Respectability is an addictive drug. Yeah. Very seductive. Yeah. So there we go. Uh, So those are some logs and specs in, in our eyes, but let's, all right, let's end with, I don't have like a, a drum or a cajon or anything. So uh, uh, we want, we want to do, Listener questions. Yeah. And the, this is this is an opportunity for us to process out loud in real time uh, something that somebody would would write in. And uh, so we've we've asked for people to sub- submit these and we've gotten a few and we'll be uh, addressing these. The Enneagram will be one that we'll, yep. we'll address coming up. Uh, this should be fun. Is um, it is it Enneagram? I've always said Enneagram. I hate it so much that I don't know how to say it. Uh, I want to say it wrong on purpose. Because it's probably Enneagram. Okay. I probably just, I'm thinking eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Okay. Enneagram. Well, among our, um, by my last count, uh, according to Apple Metrics, 1.3 billion listeners, we got a letter. I have no idea how to <laughs> We got one. Number. We got a letter. <laughs> um, okay. This question comes to us from a Dr. Albert M. in Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. Albert M. Mm-hmm. Louisville, Kentucky. No, okay. Yeah. I wonder who that could be. Okay. Uh, he says, hey, guys, big fans. You dudes are so based. All caps, six exclamation points. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is not really from Albert M., guys. It's, this is from a real listener. But 
what is, here's the real question. What is your opinion on witchcraft in children's content? Things like Cinderella's fairy godmother putting a spell on Cinderella to give her a pretty dress. Elsa from Frozen creating an ice castle with her magical powers. The characters in Harry Potter studying to become wizards. Is it harmless and make for a good story, or is it teaching kids to meditate on and learn about witchcraft? P.S. Any advice for a beginning podcaster thinking of starting a podcast that would look at news and events from a Christian worldview? <laughs> P.S. Like was fictional. All right. So what, what's your opinion? I'm going to give you first crack at that, Michael. Okay. So I'm processing this right now. Um, the world is magical. Um, we, there is, I don't think magic is uh, a, a thing that doesn't exist. So I think that there are, there are supernatural elements, things that happen. You see it in the Bible. Uh, so we are not Darwinian materialists. And so the, that's real. Mm-hmm. So how are they depicted? That is more the question. Um, so in the Narnia books, there's the, we know it's not pure allegory, but it is metaphorical representation of a Christian worldview that Lewis is trying to depict. And he talks about, I remember there's a scene where uh, the witch talks about the deep magic. The deep magic. And then right. he's like, don't quote the deep magic to mm-hmm. me, witch. Uh, Liam Neeson's mm-hmm. Aslan voice. Yeah. But the I have a special set of skills. <laughs> Ooh, wouldn't that be great if Aslan said, yeah. <laughs> "Don't quote the deep magic to me, mm-hmm. witch." Mm-hmm. I have a special set of skills. Mm. That would be mm. that getting chills. Great. Getting chills. Um, so how do we how do we depict magic? I think that when when it is disconnected to a reference point um, that is divine and authoritative then magic becomes the end in itself. It becomes the God of the system. Whereas in Christians, God is the God of the system and magic, uh, or we might say the miraculous mm. or the supernatural. These are things that God traffics in to, to communicate, to assist his people. Um, one could say the, the parting of the Red Sea, for example, we wouldn't call it magic. We'd call it supernatural, but it's, um, it is of the same species of event. Mm-hmm. So whenever we see it depicted in Disney movies, just the fact that it's Disney movies, I, my antenna goes up right. to think that it, I'm inclined to think it's, if not intentionally subversive, it, it may, it may have a subversive effect. However, I don't mind personally the enchantment of the world being depicted in such a way um, I don't know. I, so I, I, I guess what I'm saying is like, I'm, I'm discerning of it. My, my antenna goes up, but I'm not opposed to it. Okay. I remember, I remember back in the Harry Potter days when the books came out mm-hmm. and they started making movies, there was, there was a lot of uproar in the Christian world. Like, Oh, this celebrating witchcraft in the occult. And not because she's transphobic. <laughs> it was different, different uproar. I don't know if transphobic existed it uh, back in that time. Okay. Um, J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling. Uh, so let, well, let me first, there was a word I picked up on in, in here. She, uh, our, our questioner said, is it harmless? And makes her, I would say nothing is harmless. So let me, right away, mm-hmm. any, any uh, element to a story could, could be harmful. 
but I would put this in the category. So what about magic, Wade? Could, you know, it, how is it used in a story and, and is it always bad and is it always uh, sinful or, or wicked or, um, or, or devious? I would say it's a little like guns being in a story. So the world is, the world has, a, the cosmos that God created has a non-material element. And the world that God created has guns and violence. How are they used in the story? Uh, are, are, there's a way to use guns or violence in a story that is sadistic and uh, blasphemous and goes against the goodness and character of God and what he is doing in creation and how he will ultimately reinstitute a good and beautiful cosmos in the new heavens and new earth you know you think of natural born killers or some awful movie that uses violence in a way that's flagrantly just mm-hmm. uh just awful satanic Cel- celebrating yeah exactly celebrating violence. well certainly there's a way to to use the non-material or you could say magical or i could say the spiritual um there's a way to use that in a in a way that is sadistic and awful think paranormal activity mm-hmm. rosemary's baby there, there's yeah, a way there's to, a, it's a glamorizing right i'm gonna take this thing that we all kind of know deep down is out there that's ghosty and non-material and i'm gonna use it in a way that makes you scared or or titillates your curiosity or makes yeah. you wonder about it wouldn't it be wouldn't it be almost cool to be a demon or know a demon or talk to a demon well no that's mm-hmm. that's like natural born killers um that's that's using the thing that's in god's world in a way that is blasphemous uh, unhelpful. So there's always an allure to things that are forbidden. Yes, exactly. But that doesn't mean that the non-material is inherently bad or can't be used in a story for uh, for good. And I think I think it can. So a great uh, some great examples of how the non-material, or you might call magical, um, activity of the cosmos of God's actual world have been used well are. The, the uh, uh, Tolkien books, the Lord of the Rings books. Absolutely. So here he's depicting some evil spiritual activity, but the evil spiritual activity is clearly evil in the book and clearly ugly yeah. and aberrant and ultimately defeated by the God who actually exists. And and in the Tolkien, uh, in, the, in the trilogy, I don't know that he ever really brings up his personal conception of Yahweh, but in the Cimmerillion he does. And it's obvious, even if you don't, even if you don't get into a personal god in those books, it's clear the good magic wins and the bad magic loses, and the magic, the non-material, the spiritual, the enchanted, is a feature of reality. Yeah. There's some good, there is some bad. The good will win and is beautiful and is true. The bad will lose and is ugly and is ultimately false and distorted and mutated. That's a good way to work the enchanted, the thick, the non-material into your story, and I think there are other ones too. So I wouldn't say automatically... Fairy in that story, story satanic. Right. <laughs> that that that's too that's too short of an equation. It's similar to how gun in that movie, movie satanic. Yeah. No, I, I'm I'm gonna watch The Great Escape with my son in the next couple of years. I want him to see certain war movies. There are there are ways to work uh, complicated, heavy, weighty things like the the spiritual into a story that is good and goes with the grain of how God made and will remake the world. Yeah. I like that. The The thing that comes to mind for me is what whenever we're in the realm of discernment, and that's what we're doing, is trying to discern things that are not, not explicitly spelled out chapter and verse in Scripture, 
but are the application of scripture principles in scripture to real world circumstances mm-hmm. that is ethical discernment and with discernment there is a need to make finer moral distinctions and to do that to get the priority to get all the different priorities in line and ordered in the right way so that way you can discern a good a good decision so if the question is about from the from the listener in the email is is the existence of fairy dust or whatever in a, in a movie is that okay what are the different factors and the way you laid that out shows a good example of how do you discern something mm-hmm. and there are there are things to be there's a degree of caution that is necessary but that doesn't mean that you throw everything out. So a person that throws everything out when there is some discretionary elements right. available, then you want to be able to discern that. And that might mean, I mean, you may not show it to your kids, yeah. but it doesn't mean that it is something that has to be morally objectionable. And that is a, that is a skill and an art that we need to develop as yeah. in the modern world, especially. Alcohol is not inherently sinful, but I'm not going to let my son have a 40 you know, at eight years old. <laughs> Well, my kids are 16 and, and younger, so they maybe I'll try it with mine. I'm kidding. Let's uh, let's wrap up with this. Let me uh, just offer a closing word here, Christians. It's a it's a very thick world filled with spiritual realities, but you have been adopted by the God who governs all of it. Trust in Him. You need not be afraid. Take stock of Satan and his legion of rebel spirits, but know that. His days are numbered, and the end is good. 